On this episode of Heart of the Faithful Ministries, I am speaking to David Richards, the owner of Mark 837, a house and techno label. Dave is both a producer and a creator. I am your host, Ron Howard. Join me as we discuss the beginning of Dave's musical journey. All right, David. So how long have you been producing music? Well, that's a good question. Um, honestly, since uh, 1999, really. The first piece of music I put out was December 31st, 1999 on mp3.com. So what got you started doing that back in 1999? Well, I mean, I, like growing up, I started. I was playing uh, alto sax in school band and had it got to a point where I had to choose between following art and design or following music. And I ended up deciding I could probably eat better if I went with art. Um, neither one is probably, a, you know, you know, from looking back in the, you know, from what was it, 19, 1990, about when I was making that decision, it was, uh, neither one was probably a good prospect, but I just heard about this wonderful thing called graphic design. I was like, Oh, let's do that. So there seemed to have been money in the career in that. Anyway, um, so what got me to do that was, uh, you know, I just got married. And I was looking around, trying to figure out what, um, you know, just just looking back on, you know, things I had changed in my life a little bit. And I wasn't thinking too deeply about it, but it just dawned on me that I like this electronic music and I kind of wanted to figure out how it was made. And, um, you know, a friend of mine at the time just kind of recommended a little program called Fruity Roots. Uh, this was before it was FL Studio. And I started playing around with that. And from there, I started making music. As that little application developed, because it was brand new at the time, I, you know, kept investing time in that and eventually switched over to Cakewalk. And uh, there's Sonar application and bought a Yamaha CS2X and then pretty much used on one song and never touched it again because I don't play keyboard. And then uh, fell in love with Ableton Live because it worked like free loops but had all the power of uh, you know Sonar. And then um, got into a bunch of native instruments since, and my life has been very much software-driven. Uh, up until recently, when I've been dabbling again, some hardware. How would you categorize the music that you create? I mean, I've I've always heard it called pretty much Christian house music, but how would you categorize it? Well, I mean, I I just simplify it a little more. It's just a mixture of house and techno music. Okay, so it's it's how should I phrase this? It's loop based. It's so somewhat I do is. Um, pre-Christian influence and some of it is just how I'm feeling at the time but it's all about just kind of this idea of taking eight bars with maybe six or ten instruments and manipulating that over a period of you know five to eight minutes you know that's really kind of what it is you get that eight bar theme and just kind of looping that out fading things in fading things out putting some effects on it and seeing where it goes and I love the ambient effect of that too, because you've you've done some some pieces that have a lot of layers to it, 
It just when you start to listen to it, it it just there's like the there's like the sections that are very droning, but it draws you in, and and then you have some that just has some very powerful punch to it. If you get what I'm saying, so what what influences you to make a piece? I mean, it, it literally is you know, what's going on through my mind at the time. Sometimes it's just, I, I feel like I need to get in and create something. Sometimes I'm just frustrated. Um, there are times when I've really got this desire to do some, you know, gospel influenced piece. Uh, sometimes I just find an audio sample that sounds really cool. That I decided, you know, I want to build something around one type thing that I did like, I don't know, a long time ago now was just a, track with a friend at the time called left and left is essentially a psychotic voicemail from perhaps the worst boyfriend any woman could ever have who wasn't actually abusive and um it was just like hey i've, I've just want you to know that it's over i've tried but i'm done with you I've left a few of my things I need to come by and pick up later. By the way, I called your boss, told him that he, you would be distraught. He seemed and wouldn't be in today. He seemed very upset with that. So he may have lost a job and I'm sorry. Uh, it just, just goes on like that. You know, I left my toothbrush. Please don't use it. I'm, I'll be coming back for it. If you find my GI Joes, right. don't sell them. Uh, I've changed all the, I've changed all the locks to your apartment because I know you don't want me to have the key. That's a bad boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it just, yeah, it just kind of went on. But the, all that was kind of stream of consciousness with me just, you know, talking through that. But then there are other times when, um, you know, when something's going on, like all these social unrest that we've had in the last year, I find myself, you know, working with a sample, talking about, you know, loving everybody and, just that, you know, we've got to find a way to get together. So calling for unity through music, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, don't get upset and let everything tear you down. If, if all you have is hate and anger in your life, you're not going to be able to progress. In it. And then there's other songs where it's just, I find a great gospel sample where it's somebody singing praises, and I'll use that instead. And then I've got a, another friend who I keep saying I'm going to work with one day, I, I end up not but i keep really you know releasing her music on the label her name is coco street and she's just this great house gospel diva who lives out in california i've been friends with for i guess 15 years maybe if i ever get to a point where i'm like hey let's work on this i want to take time to do that i've got vocalists i can you know work with i mean it, it really just depends on what i'm doing at the time and then you know it could be something like a movie that draws me in and i've got to go when you're doing something that is based on say a rough time you're having a kind of that anger moment that rage moment would you say your your music gets punchier or it gets you know angrier or i mean do you use a lot of distorted things or is it just i mean i know it's electronic but you know what where, where do you come up with the the sounds to convey that emotion i mean a lot of it is um just running yeah i mean running it through Saturation plugins or distortion plugins. Um, some of it's just filtering down just to the low end, for example. There's a lot, like you said earlier, there's a lot of times where I'll just put some droning ambient thing in for a while. And there's just part of, I'm not a big horror movie fan, but there is 
part of me that just kind of likes some of the the ambience that the those films sometimes bring. So some of that I just naturally kind of uh, am drawn to and kind of bring in. You know, part of that also comes from the fact that I grew up playing alto sax and nobody bothered to tell me what a chord was. You know, so there's a serious lack of music theory behind uh, what I do at times. Right. <laughs> That's got to make it a little bit difficult. Eh, not really. It, I mean, so it, what it does is it drives me to be more percussive, I think. And so I'll, I'll work more with, you know, stabbing sounds and as opposed to trying to build out a full melody. So it's more, things end up being more rhythmic and pattern oriented. Would you say that kind of freed it up a little bit or helped you to become more creative? It's freed me up, I'd say that. I mean, just getting over the fact that I don't have to sound like everybody else and I can do whatever I want and not worry about it. The fact that it's all loop-based means that I don't have to worry about all this instrumentation. I can, you know, if I don't like something, I'll have to re-record it. I can just chop it up and make a new loop with it. Or um, since it's MIDI, I can just take something and throw a different synth on it. And so it's not like I've got to go out and buy another $500 guitar. I've probably got another synth patch that I can just apply to it and quickly move on. It's allowed me to move faster, let's put it that way. I don't get hung up as much as some people do, you know, in the actual production process to make everything perfect. I've got a friend in Canada right now who is really working close to, I guess it was 200th day, where he's just been going through and focusing on various aspects of production and really trying to learn the insides and outs of all of his instruments, so I'm kind of looking at him like, yeah, that's great. How, what have you actually produced, though? What are you actually producing that's going to be released? And he's got some stuff on, so I'm kind of being a little rough on him with by saying that. But, you know, you can get lost by trying to perfect too much of your sound or your art in general, and you lose some of the raw characteristics that kind of make it unique. Coming up with the chord progression and uh, trying to, figure out a riff that doesn't sound like something that someone else has done or, you know, that's, it's kind of a difficult thing to do. So have you found that while you're doing your music, that that is something that you run into, you'll listen to something and you'll find that it's like, wait a minute, that sounds just like X, Y, Z. Oddly, I don't, I don't. And, um, so part of the nature of like the electronic music is more, it's sample and loop based. So it's almost expected for you to just go rip off some clip from an old song and to reuse it, right? And just sample that. Um, I don't do that. I might use some some uh, royalty-free loops, but I don't, you know, just rip off like entire bass lines and pull a whole vanilla ice thing, right? But it's kind of expected. When you get into this electronic world, whether it's, you know, hip-hop or techno or house, it, a lot of that is sampled work from older times and brought in. I've got Another guy I know who basically runs an entire label where he's just been sampling old disco tunes and reworking them. And it started out as kind of a hobby for him, and then people wind them, and then it just evolved from there. Well, somebody has to revive disco. Come on. <laughs> yeah, well, arguably it never died. It, it evolved into house. Right. <laughs> so, but the, what we have for house music today pretty diverse in what, what it sounds like. It was very, very raw back in the 80s when it really started to take off. Um, I mean, because you're looking at guys, uh, particularly in Chicago, where they had, um, you know, a big group of about 10 or 20 of them, and uh, between all of them, they had enough money to buy one synthesizer and one drum machine. 
And so they would just pass it around for, you know, from one to another, trying to make something with it. And, uh, you know, and eventually, you know, house music kind of evolved out of that type of environment. Can't really do that with a guitar. You know, <laughs> a guy and I, we well, tried buying a an amp and we had the amp and we tried holding on to the amp. Like, I'll have it for a little bit, then you can have it for a little bit. And then I eventually got it back. And when I got it back, it lasted like three days before the the tube finally went out and then uh we both went in to say hey the tube's out on this thing can you fix it and it was a little bit more expensive than we wanted said well will you buy it <laughs> and then we bought our own amps yeah it's like it's like with this stuff you know it's the one of the main sounds or main sense that really kind of defined you know house music specifically acid house in the late 80s early 90s was the uh uh rollins TV, you know, 303. And so that was their attempt to make a guitar synth, a bass guitar synth. And they kind of failed miserably at it. And so they made all these things, shipped them out, did these ads for them. Um, nobody liked them. And they all ended up in pawn shops really quick. And so here comes, um, you know, in particular, you know, this guy named Pierre in Chicago who picks one up and he can't, you know, they're just playing, passing around from house to house and they can't figure out you know, what what to do with it, or they kind of know it makes some noise. And it wasn't until Pierre got hold of it and really just started playing around with the frequency cutoff and, you know, the resonance knobs on there. And when he did that, he ended up creating this really squelchy kind of sound that sounded interesting. So it has a sequencer built in, so they can just ram, you know, hit whatever note they want and sequence that. But And it plays it very, very robotically and doesn't sound very lifelike. But when you start doing this other thing, you know, start tweaking just those two knobs, the sound dynamically changes and, you know, you can actually kind of play it like a, you would, a very poor example, but like a trombone. So there's, it's not like you're changing the notes, but you're kind of changing the notes that are being played, the sequence or anything like that while it's playing a sequence. But what you are is changing the tone of every single note as you twist those knobs. So it became a uh, very unique kind of sound and really, you know, to this day, it's one of the instruments that's kind of most sought after, most recreated by other companies and so on. So it's like that. And Roland's uh, TR-909 is a drum machine that, you know, just about everybody has. And the kicks in it are just really hard and solid. And the hats are just very classic um, electronic hats and they'll sample those like crazy and then a lot of hip hop is based off the TR uh, 808 especially the kicks for it and even the kicks samples for that get used as um, you know bass lines as well so it's you know a lot of repurposing how much can, you know the, all that early house stuff was just like how much can you do with, with what you have and what you had normally was just you know those two things maybe a, a third cent well, usually the innovation comes from... Yeah, you have to play around with it, but there's a limiting... You have to limit yourself to force yourself to kind of figure out how to, uh, let's say, abuse the rules, so to speak, to find something really creative out of it. And a lot of the problem I see with electronic music now is you end up with guys building you know, songs out 60 to 100 tracks in some cases. And there's just so much detail in it, and they've kind of lost that you know, original raw sound that um, house and techno kind of started with. Don't they get muddled up because of all of the different sounds that they're producing through these tracks? I mean, that's it seems like a huge amount of tracks for just one song. So you got to remember a couple things with this, right? So 
some of these are mono sets, so they only can play one note at a time. So if you wanted to do a chord, well, now you've just gone to, let's say, three tracks, you know, containing the same synth patch, but you've got three instances of that same synthesizer to make your chord with it. So there's three. Right. Then, um, you know, you may want to thicken something up. And so the easiest way to thicken a sound up is to double that track. So you're not really changing anything, but you are, or you're not really adding a whole different synthesizer, a whole different line, but it's kind of a mixing trick. So you're overcoming polyphony issues. You're overcoming kind of a richness or lack of richness by doubling these tracks. So a lot of what's being done is that. And then you get into this thing called sidechain busing. So that can give, add another audio track where you're using that to basically manipulate the volume of, of yet another track or group of tracks. So it gets pretty complicated. And yeah, you can spend you know a week or more just mixing some piece of audio down. And you have, never have an intent to play that live. You know, it just goes off on onto you know a wave file that somebody buys from a store and gets put, put into a DJ, um, some equipment, and then you know broadcasts out either on the internet or out in some club. Coming back again from the analog side of music, I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around using three tracks just to come up with one chord. But I mean that that does make sense. I mean three three notes make a chord. So yeah, yeah. So if you have you know, so I mean on your guitar you've got what five six strings. Or more. So if I'm working with a mono synth like this TV 303, I have to have six of those to do what you can do on the guitar. Right. That makes sense. Because for me, I could just hit the chord. It doesn't matter what you're, what else you're hitting. Even though you're you're using four fingers and you're plucking all six strings, you're hitting three G's in the chord and then two other of the other note, but it still only comes up to three notes, but some of those notes are different octaves. So it's it's still all the same. It's just three note chords. If it makes you feel any better, I, I start cutting back my tracks when I get over 16. So I, I, I'm just like, if, if I'm hitting 20, I've got problems. So somewhere between 16 and 20, right. I don't want to mess with anything more than that. So that's why I keep looking at all, some of these other friends of mine are doing this and they're like at 40 and 60. I'm like, that's a lot. Mixing that's a If you've listened to a drum solo, is that they will have a theme based on the drum solo. So I kind of liken what you're doing to a, a drummer going into a drum solo. Even though you have different things happening throughout the whole solo, there is a theme that he the drummer usually tends to come back to. And and that and that kind of pulls, kind of roots himself into what he's doing. And he can go off here and there and do you know, triplets over here and go off and hit the, hit the crash here. And, but, but usually it comes back to kind of this, this root thing that they're doing. Just to expand on that, that's pretty much the, um, you know, the essence of jazz as a whole. So it's not just limited to, you know, percussion. It's, it's everything. And you get that, you know, you start looking at jazz. Um, in my case, uh, again, the way I'm kind of structuring it, is uh, between like eight and 16 measures. You know, that's one loop or one thought process in there. Sometimes it's longer than that, but you keep the kind of structure like that. And as far as DJing goes, the DJs are expecting things to be in these kind of four bar multiples. Okay. So they, they're really good at counting up to eight, you know, eight, 16, 32, somewhere around there. 
Um, when you ask them to count to five, they've got a problem. Right. Because the, the thing they're trying to do is line your track up with, you know, somebody else's track and make something new out of that. And so, one, that's why it's kind of nice to keep things more minimal because you know your stuff is going to be, you know, a building block for something bigger. And two, um, you don't want to confuse the DJ, you know. So, so that builds in some structure where you end up having a theme. Um, you know roughly how long a section of the music the piece can be and when you need to return back to the central idea. You also know you can still structure the kind of like everything else is structured. You got the whole, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, structure for like song. To simplify it, most of mine is more kind of a classical thing. So it's more kind of an A, B, C kind of deal. So, you know, there's an intro section, there's this breakdown. Um, I might return back to kind of what that introduction theme is, but usually it's the introduction plus something else. So I, I you hit that in that C section, it's just going to be kind of a return to the main theme plus something. Normally I come up with a whole theme and then it's just a matter of breaking it down to how do I work up to that C. So I'll work on that C section first, basically. Gosh, did I just say C section? Anyway. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> So that third section as well, start with, and then A is actually a derivative of C instead of C being a derivative of A. Right. And sometimes it does change, and I do it the opposite, but pretty much there's this concept of that, you know, C section. I Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah. So, so you kind of begin with the end in mind. Yeah. You know, for me, I can pretty much talk music all day, but let's let's move on to so David. How does creating music play a role in your faith? It's pretty much an expression of who God made me. You know, it's it's not that everything has to be like you know, not to say not everything has to be let's call it worship music for me, but everything that I do is an act of worship because that is what God made me to do. If that makes any sense. I actually love how you put that. That is that is great. It's it's not directly a worship piece, but God is the influence on it regardless because of who he has created you to be. Yeah, and if I was called to strictly do worship music, there wouldn't be a problem with that. But the fact is, I'm called first to be creative. And there are certain people that God wants me to interact with. And in order to interact with those people, he's given me interests that are beyond worship music. That makes sense. I mean, we're we're not called just to be the aliens that everyone thinks we're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. That means we can't have anything to do with the world. But I, I kind of come with this mindset that we are actually supposed to be in the world, but the not of it part is where our Christianity comes in. But that doesn't mean you can't enjoy the wonders that God created, the things of music, the creativity. There are so many things in this world that we we will deny ourselves apart from the, the usual ones, you know, I mean, the ones that are harmful for us, whether mentally or emotionally. But other than that, God created these things for us to have and to use. I mean, Adam and Eve was put in the garden and they were told here, they've given you the plants and the animals that they're for you to use. And with that, pretty sure Adam wasn't just thinking about God when he was looking at Eve, you know. Hopefully not, but maybe, <laughs> I don't know. That's dangerous territory. I know. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, the old question. that's the old question of can you lust after your wife. Right, yes. 
Absolutely. Sin? Am I supposed to? I don't know. Like it's back to the whole concept is you know of God is a jealous God and wants us you know our full attention. <laughs> doesn't right. really want to be divided among other things. I mean, it's complicated. It is, definitely. I, I wrote a song. I, I played it in front of the church while the kids were coming out and they were bringing roses to her, you know, and all this other stuff for, for our anniversary and everything. And, and you mm-hmm. know, everybody was crying. The deacons were crying. It was, it was just, it was fantastic. And, you know, I kind of felt bad doing that in the church, so I kind of waited until after the service was done, I said, okay, we, we have officially ended the service, but if you'll indulge me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, you kind of get back to, I don't, I don't know if you remember what B.B. King said about having to play in the House of Blues during the Olympics in 96. I know it's really obscure, but, you know, that, the House of Blues, uh, or the Tabernacle as it's known now, was the Baptist Tabernacle before the Olympics. And it was, you know, sold... And to the House of Blues chain, music venue chain. They renovated the whole thing right before the Olympics, and then they started you know, booking all these acts. And B.B. King found out that was a church. <laughs> at one point, he's like, I can't play there. My music does not belong in the church at all. So, yeah, I'm kind oh, of... But he's you. got some of the most soulful music. Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah, cannot argue that. Although I'd rather take Glenn Kaiser over B.B. King, I think. Oh, really? Have you ever seen Glenn Kaiser live? You know, I cannot say that I have. I will, I will have to look that up. Oh, gosh. Yeah, well, you know where he, he, you know he's from Res Band, right? Resurrection Band? Yeah. And was one of the Jesus people, USA guys. Anyway, so with me working at Hornstone Music Festival for the last couple of years that it was around, yeah, I got to go see him several times, just play. And, and when he would, his solo stuff is all blues all Christian blues. And it is, I mean, I've, I think I've sat and watched them for maybe play for about two hours, maybe three at a time. But I mean, he's just a master at that type of work music. Um, so I think it's him. I've seen him with Larry Howard. I think it was before. That was great. But um, yeah, go look him up on Spotify, his solo stuff. It's the overall point was, yeah, nobody really wants to use the church as a venue to sell stuff. But, you know, certainly honoring your wife in your church is not something that's going to tick off God. You know, even if you do feel like it's a little selfish, maybe she needs a little recognition. All right. So, David, let's talk about your label. What is the name of your label to explain us how the label came to be? Um, what are you doing with the label and how can people actually get to this this music that's out there? Yeah, so uh, where to start? Um, so the label itself, the name of it is Mark 837. We spell it out MK 837. And it evolved out of, you know, there were two other guys I started the label with. One died, so that's a cheery story. And the other one I ended up having a falling out with. Uh, that's another long, cheery story that we'll have to get into later. So it boils down to, um, you know, we had, you know, one of the guys and I had been talking about starting something at some point for some time, which sounds really cryptic. But I've been running a website called tastyfresh.com, and that was um, a site that was actually handed down to me from somebody else. But the web, it was the main website for all Christians who were involved in electronic music or interested in, in electronic dance music. They were going there and getting information from, you know, ever since it went up and again, December 1996. 
I don't know how I have, have all these dates memorized, but you know, I should, you know, what happened was, um, we had been running podcasts there for some time, uh, doing, we had been doing some reviews of Christian, you know, electronic music been coming out. We, and there was a lack of, um, consistency and quality in a lot of it at that time. And we really wanted to um, kind of push things forward and get it sounding as good as a lot of the secular music. And so, you know, Kevin and I um, took a pretty hard stance and we really were tough on a lot of the reviews. That may have been a good thing. It may have been a bad. I'm still wondering about that myself. I think where things are now individually, everybody's a better musician. As far as being like an organized group of people, we're in a far worse place than we were before. So it's kind of a mixed bag. But eventually what happened in 2007, I think it was, I was given the opportunity to manage the electronic music stage at Cornerstone Music Festival, which was a music festival run by Jesus People USA from basically the mid 80s until 2012 when everybody ran out of money because of the economy. So, right. Um, so, summer of 2009 I think it was we were trying to figure out what was next for us and we were discussing potentially starting a new label one where we could help artists get releases out there so people would buy them we didn't have a fan base to start out with and uh, we thought we'd stand a chance of doing that so uh, we teamed up with the third person Chris to do that and we had the label up and running by really you know by December that year so we started you know, 2010 officially, but the name actually comes out of Tasty Fresh and the main podcast that we were using was called, or we had from that site at the time was uh, Tasty Fresh Presents, or as I, we abbreviated it, TFP. And uh, we were just desperate trying to find a name for this thing. I just finally said, you know what, let's just take TFP, you know, and see what we can find, transpose it to numbers and see what we can find. With it. When we transposed it to numbers, we were looking at, of course, an old, you know, phone, and so TFP translated to 837. And then I said, let's look up a Bible verse, see what matches. And so that, then we ended up landing on Mark, you know, chapter 8, verse 37, which I always get it wrong, or not wrong, but phrase it wrong because all the other translations that are out there, or, or translations, and then it's repeated in different Gospels. But, you know, essentially, you know, or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? So quite literally, that the Bible verse is the name of the, the record label. We liked it because it worked in you know TFP. We liked it because we're talking about music and there has to be soul to it or it's useless. And we liked it because you could also look at it from the standpoint of quality that we didn't want to compromise. And then, of course, there's the actual biblical message as well. So it kind of hit this great confluence of ideas that kind of summed up what we wanted to do with it. That was cool, but then we needed to figure out what to do for the logo. Coming from a graphic design background with almost having an entire minor in art history, right? I started remembering that there were, you know, at least coming out of the early church traditions, that there were symbols for each of the Gospels. Well, it just happened that the symbol for the Gospel of Mark is a winged lion. And so the logo was born out of that. So we've got a winged lion, which I hate referring to as a griffin, because, you know, the griffin could be an eagle mixed. I don't know. It literally is a line with eagle's wings because the other version is you've got the head of the eagle, body of a lion with wings, and I'm, that's not what it is. So um, 
Mark was born out of that. So Mark is the name of our Queen Goliath. That's pretty much where the name came from. But the purpose of the label is not strictly to be a Christian label. So we're a mixture of Christian and secular artists. Um, some of that is to open relationships so that we can share the gospel when it's appropriate to these artists. And some of it is literally to make sure that we are able to take the Christian artists and put them up against secular artists and have them, you know, know that the quality of music that's being put out is the, you know, the same or better. So that's been kind of a balancing game that we've been playing since uh, 2010. Of course, the fun part is making money with this, and uh, we aren't. <laughs> but but we've been releasing weekly now. Um, really, we have been doing it like twice a month for most of the, the time the label has been around. But starting last year, we started. I switched it over to releasing weekly. And um, we've seen massive growth from that. We, we, we sold most tracks that we've sold, you know, in our history, you know, within a year last year. And I'm hoping that this year will at least match that if not exceed it. We actually have outsold record that was set back in 2011 because somebody decided to name an EP after his fiance. And it hit iTunes and everybody went crazy for it based off the EP. And they got mad at us because the Adele that was uh, on the title of the EP was not the Adele they were hoping for. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know. It, it, well, what a wonderful circumstance of mistaken identity. Oh, yeah. It, it was wonderful. All right. And it's been depressing. It has been depressing between the time that happened and this year. Because I keep looking back. I'm like, how did we get that right? You know, there's all sorts of stuff I'm doing now. I'm trying to learn more about music marketing now, specifically through Facebook. So I'm taking some cla online classes with uh, a group called Indiepreneur. They specifically work with, you know, artists that don't want to sign to labels and try to teach them how to market themselves and give them the tools that they need to do that. And so I'm kind of doing that, but, you know, with the label and, then, you know, switch over and start doing my own music that way at some point for all this stuff. So there's a lot of experimentation that I'm doing right now. Other people have had a lot more luck and been able to pick it up faster. Um, I've got one guy I know, um, I'm, Name names because he's worth checking out is uh, Chris Howland, and I've been proud of him. He's had a couple of releases with my label, but he's gone completely independent now, and he's been working with some Christian hip hop artists and uh, other pop artists. And um, you know, he's to a point where he's getting. I think I did the math, and he, I like bragging on him. I don't know if this number is 100 percent accurate, but based on what he's posted before, just off Spotify now, he's pulling at least 30 grand a year. You know, and for Spotify to be the one that everybody dumps on because they don't pay people, they don't do this. I have to defend Spotify all the time. I'm like, the pro problem with Spotify is you have to have two do two things. One, you have to ha find your audience, and two, you have to release music that your audience wants to listen to more than one. So, if you can do those two things, you've got plenty of money coming in. Another guy that I don't personally know, but I've, I've followed over the years a little bit. Um, you know, another. Uh, he's a Christian drum and bass guy from the UK, BC. He runs a record label called Spiria. I just looked, checked him up on uh, Spotify this weekend, and he's like several hundred thousand people listen to him every month. So that translates. If everybody goes there and listens to just one song of his, you know, he's pulling a thousand dollars a month just from that. You know, but chances are, you know, they go there, they hit play on an album or hit play on all the tracks, and so he's probably getting, you know, between ten to fifty 
displays and what from each of those artists. So it, it adds up. That does add up. And and I know for my kids and even for myself, you know, my teenagers, I've noticed that I've got Amazon Music and I have found that they don't like to go to Amazon Music for newer music. They will use it for older music. And I kind of do the same thing myself. You know, if I want to listen to Journey or, you know, I'm kind of dating myself, I guess, or, or something, you know, of that nature, I'll, I will go to amazon music but if i want to listen to something newer i will look at the spotify playlist because all of the spotify playlists being able to use someone else's playlist that they've released that you can actually listen to and you can hear new music and see what someone else is interested in and the kids actually will go to that before they'll go to amazon music or apple music yeah i mean i cannot speak more highly of spotify's algorithm to be honest with you the way whole way it works i have been you know i pretty much listen exclusively to spotify and I, and I don't mean this to be a huge ad for them but the connections that it has started to make the most recently is there there are very very few uh just straight up ccm songs that i like okay and right. you know recently i've had almost all of those from the uh 90s and maybe you know, early 2000s, just seep into my the dynamic playlist on, that I have. You know, so just to like their daily mix stuff. So it's been seeping in there. I have found bands I didn't even know existed or I had forgotten existed for like rare Christian bands. So it, it can find the obscure and when it identifies what you like, it can really bring in stuff like that. I mean, I had like Sweet Comfort Band from the 70s slip in somehow. Right. Wow. Okay. And I'm like, I'm sure you looked that one up. Yeah. Yeah. I may have looked up Larry Norman at some point. Right. But I, I would not have gone for that, nor seriously did I even know they existed, but somehow they got in there. Like, who's even in my daily list right now? Let's find out. I, I just did not expect this. Right. So, so while, while you're looking for that, I am just going to say to everybody who's listening to the podcast as a time of the, at the time of this podcast, we are not David and I are not sponsored by Spotify, but I will let you know that this actual podcast is going to be hosted on anchor, which is a Spotify product. So Spotify, if you hear this and you're like, Hey, we got to send some money this way. We're, we're here for you, buddy. Yeah, this is... Okay, so here's my daily mix one for the day. It's got Mike Knott, Seven Places, P.K. Mitchell. I don't even know who that is. Uh, Lost Dogs, Bride, Veil of Ashes, uh, Poor Old Lou, Shout, Second Chapter of Axe, Plank Eye, Jars of Clay, All Story United, The Echoing Green, Starflyer, Ec- Code of Ethics, Miss Angie, Undercover, Lifesavers, A.J. Mora, Margaret Becker, see what I mean? There's that CCM that popped in there. Right, yeah. Uh, Joe Rowe, Rage of the Angels, Brian Duncan, Tate, Mike Knott, again, Bride, Back to Lost Dogs, and all sorts, Save Saker. I mean, it, it is, but that list, the way it flows, I mean, it is down to, I think it's even uh, harmonically mixed, right? So the tracks actually show up following the, the correct you know, kind of key progression that really makes it pleasing. So I am extremely impressed with the algorithm. So David, where can we find your music though? Is tastyfresh.com still available? So, okay. So if you go on Spotify and do a search for Dave Richards or go on Apple and look for Dave Richards, you can find my music. 
Um, if you're looking for the label, if you, it's a little bit harder to do on everything, but if you just go, because labels for like for electronic music, the record label is actually important for every other thing out there. It's the artist. So you might know of Island records, you might know of Geffen, but you're not going to go to Island records to listen to their entire catalog. So it just doesn't make sense to do that. So when when it comes to dance music, you you might. So if you go to Facebook and uh, look up MK837, you'll find us. Um, Same thing with Twitter, but we're more active on Facebook. And you can also go to Spotify, do a search on MK837. You'll see some playlists come up. You should see a profile for us to pop up there, and you can follow us there. But those are the best ways to do it, outside MK837.com. Thank you for listening to Heart of the Faithful Ministries. Check out the Essential Dave Richards playlist on Spotify and support HOTFM by sharing, leaving a review, or subscribing to this podcast. All music in this episode is produced by Mark 837, graphics by Ellie Howard. I am your host, Ron Howard, reminding you to guard your heart above all else, for everything you do comes from it. Stay vigilant, my friends. 